In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. The Lord be with you. A reading from the Holy Gospel according to Luke. Tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to listen to Jesus, but the Pharisees and scribes began to complain, saying, This man welcomes sinners and eats with them. So Jesus addressed this parable to them. What man among you, having a hundred sheep and losing one of them, would not leave the ninety-nine in the desert and go after the lost one until he finds it? And when he finds it, he sets it on his shoulders with great joy, and upon his arrival home, he calls together his friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found my lost sheep. I tell you, in just the same way, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over ninety-nine righteous people who have no need of repentance. Or what woman, having ten coins and losing one, would not light a lamp and sweep the house, searching carefully until she finds it? And when she does find it, she calls together her friends and neighbors and says to them, Rejoice with me, because I have found the coin that I lost. In just the same way, I tell you, there will be rejoicing among the angels of God over one sinner who repents. The Gospel of the Lord. Let us pray. Father, we thank you for this evening. We thank you for this opportunity to gather together. Thank you for the gift of our Catholic faith. Thanks especially for the gift of your Son Jesus, who saves us and constantly shows us his love for us. In his powerful and sacred name, Father, we ask you to send the Holy Spirit upon our evening, upon our whole mission, upon our parish, upon our families. Anoint us and help us to see your will always and have the courage to do it. We place this evening in the hands of Mary, the mother of the church, and we pray together. Hail Mary, full of grace, the Lord is with thee. Blessed art thou among women. And blessed is the fruit of thy womb, Jesus. Holy Mary, Mother of God, pray for us sinners, now and at the hour of our death. Our Lady, Refuge of Sinners, St. Patrick, Pope St. John Paul II, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, please be seated. Thanks for coming, everybody. Great turnout. Again, very, very delighted to be with uh, all of you for this mission. Thanks again to Monsignor Steve for asking me to come. I do have to say, I prayed for all of you and kind of chuckled as I was driving down Randall Road to get here tonight. (laughs) So I do uh, have a favor to ask. We're going on mission. We're going on retreat as a parish family. So uh, I'd ask you to pray kind of throughout the day for your fellow parishioners, for our mission, that our hearts would be open for whatever the Lord wants to give us during these sacred days. Uh, And also, you know, you can pray during the retreat as well, during the retreat as well as I'm kind of talking and sharing stories. We can just kind of ask the Holy Spirit to come down upon us and be with us. Deal? Thanks, everybody. Then uh, our mission has sort of a mission mission statement that I just kind of want us to remember through the talks, 
throughout our days, you know, the next few days. St. Benedict had this motto. He was the founder of uh, Western monasticism, the founder of being a monk. He said, prefer nothing to the love of Christ, right? Prefer nothing to the love of Christ. And we Catholics don't get interactive all the time. And that's a nice thing. But it's a nice thing when we get interactive too. So we're going to do this little call and response thing during our mission, okay? I'll say, prefer nothing. And then you respond to the love of Christ. Prefer nothing. Oh, you guys are good. Yeah, that's good. Thank you. All right. So we're going on retreat together. One of the questions I get asked quite a bit uh, as a priest is, you know, like you go over to a family's house for dinner or something, and they want to ask you the real questions. So uh, families will often ask, what's like the biggest thing you've learned? Or what's something you really didn't expect about being a priest? Or is there anything that shocked you or surprised you? And I gotta tell you, it's a lesson that I learned kind of relatively, relatively quickly. And that's that uh, I sort of thought that in uh, our Christian faith, people had heard the message so many times that it had gotten a little bit uh, old, a little bit boring, a little bit stale, a little bit crusty. And certainly as Catholics, our job is not to change the gospel or change the message one iota, right? Just like St. Paul told us, we're supposed to receive it and hand it on just as we found it. But because it had gotten kind of old and stale and boring for folks that it could use a little facelift, right? It could use a little freshening up. Uh, we could present the gospel in kind of a, a new, more engaging way for the modern person because it had gotten so repetitive. But as I started priestly ministry, what I'd realized real quickly is that it's not that people had heard the gospel message so many times and become bored with it. There are literally people at McDonald's right now having a cup of coffee that do not know that God is love. There are people in our world today that have never heard the message even one time that God is love, or even some of us have heard the message. It's kind of gone into the head, but we've never made what we call the 12-inch drop. We've never let that message of God's love sink into our hearts. And so that's why I think this is such a, a great mission to do on the sacred heart of Jesus on God's love, because I gotta tell you, I'm gonna tell you two stories now of, you know, you pray and you hear the Lord's voice and he kind of prompts you to do things. But I got to tell you the only two times I've like heard, heard his voice, okay? So the first time I'm just going to tell you kind of a little bit about myself, my background and my priestly vocation story. So my parents, for whatever reason, had really uh, not been practicing their Catholic faith when I was growing up. So I was baptized as a baby and then they kind of fell away from the practice of their faith. And my grandma talked about it a lot. You know, she would use words like mass and crucifix and statue and candle. And so when I was in fifth grade, I said, Mom, can we, uh, can we go see one of these mass things? And we're going to talk about Catholic guilt a little bit later tonight, okay, everybody? <laughs> but her fifth grade youngest baby boy, who she hadn't been taken to church, asked her, a cradle Catholic, to go to Mass. So she said, uh, sure, we can go to Mass. And we went, I was in fifth grade, and I'll never forget the very first Mass I went to. It was one of those like evening Masses during Lent that our parish offered. 
And uh, anybody know Father Rich Rizinski at St. Thomas More in Elgin? Yeah. He was the priest who offered the Mass. I'll never forget it. And I said, Mom, I gotta be whatever that is when I grow up. It was love at first sight. I fell in love with the Mass right away. So I did what every fifth grade boy does to become a priest. Nothing. <laughs> and I went through high school and started uh, dating a little bit and then all of a sudden I didn't want to be a priest as bad as I wanted to be a priest before and so I went to a college at Marquette University in Milwaukee and I was dating this girl there and uh, I kind of figured out a good plan for myself. I still loved uh, church and all things Catholic and that kind of stuff but I said well what if I sort of go on to graduate school and I get a degree in theology and then maybe I could have the best of both worlds, right? I could kind of dabble in the whole church life and also have this married life as well. Wouldn't that be great? And so I kind of had it all figured out for myself. And then there was one uh, mass during like finals week. So I don't know if you're familiar with this, but at Catholic University, sometimes they'll do like a 10 p.m. student mass on a Sunday night. And I, I was just, I say that because I was not in the spiritual zone. I was just kind of there to fulfill my Sunday obligation. And I wasn't in the spiritual zone. Sometimes, you know, you're, you're just in it to win it uh, when you're at Mass. And sometimes you're kind of like daydreaming a little bit. Or sometimes, you know, you go to like the Abbey of Monte Cassino and there's all this marble and gold leaf and the beauty of the place draws you into the spiritual zone. Well, this was the Alumni Memorial Chapel that's used by all kinds of different groups on campus. And it has pink carpeting and pink carpeted walls and pink like fabric chairs that you can rearrange. So it wasn't necessarily the place. And then, uh, how do we do this delicately? You know, we love all our priests, right? We love all our priests and pray for them and support them. And, uh, you're all Catholics, you know how this goes. So, sometimes you look back and you say to yourself, yes! Monsignor Knox is coming down the aisle today. Right? <laughs> now, this would be really easy to go after the other guys here, but I won't, okay? <laughs> and then other times you turn around and you say, okay, well, I better push the brunch reservation back 15 minutes, you know? Or, <laughs> you know how it goes. And so it was a, a priest coming down the aisle that I wasn't particularly excited about. He sort of did a lot of times he would do kind of like cheesy prop homilies and things and he'd kind of pull out Purell from under the pulpit and say look this is how the Holy Spirit washes away our sins in confession you know and it was just that kind of stuff and all that to say I just wasn't in any kind of a spiritual zone at this at this mass and then uh, all of a sudden he was putting his hands over the bread and wine to consecrate them into the body and blood of Jesus. And I clearly heard this voice say to me, John, if, if you had everything you've just planned out for yourself, if, if you had a, a wonderful wife and children that adored you and a successful theology career, whatever that looks like, a nice house, you know, maybe you publish a book or something, if you had all the boxes you wanted to check, but you could never do this. That is, you could never celebrate the sacraments. You could never consecrate the Eucharist. 
would you really be happy? And it was a visceral response. I felt it in the pit of my stomach. I, I knew that I was going to have to kind of make a few changes in my life. And so I, I started a process of spiritual direction with one of the Jesuits on campus just to make sure that was the prompting of the Holy Spirit and not a campus burrito I'd eaten earlier in the day. <laughs> and uh, you know, at that point, it was no looking back. Uh, we kind of discerned that parish priesthood, diocesan priesthood, was kind of where the Lord was calling me. And uh, it's been a, a dream come true. People ask me all the time, how are you doing, Father? And I always say, live in the dream. I think a lot of times people think I'm kidding or I'm just joking around, but that is a very true response. I love, love, love being a parish priest, and I'm so glad to be here with all of you. And so that leads me to the story of the only other time I've ever really kind of almost audibly heard the Lord's voice speak to me, and that was when I was asked to do a parish mission. I said, okay, well, that's a lot of talking. You've got to put a lot of stuff together for that. Usually they have a theme. What should the theme be about? And if I were you, I would think I was some guy that always had some devotion to the Sacred Heart, or if you went to my room in the rectory, you'd see all kinds of images of the Sacred Heart all around and filling my office, and I'd have statues and paintings of it. But to be quite honest with you, I kind of started from scratch on this devotion to the Sacred Heart. And uh, that's why I was so committed to it and so passionate about it, because I knelt down and I said, Lord, what would you like a parish mission about? What would you like the theme to be? And for the only other time in my whole life, I clearly heard him say, my heart. So here we are. I'm so glad that we're together. And uh, I think because of what I was mentioning earlier, that there are so many people who've never heard the message of God's love, or there's so many Catholics even who haven't allowed the 12-inch drop to happen and really feel embraced by God's love in his sacred heart. I think it's kind of a very special time for us to be talking about it. To do that, we got to get really nerdy, and let's go a little bit historically, and we're going to talk about Jesus' apparitions to St. Margaret Mary Alacoque and kind of what was happening at the time. Jesus always shows up at very poignant times in history. And I want to talk about probably the second greatest heresy ever to rock our Catholic tradition. The second biggest problem among believing Catholic Christians that's ever rocked our Catholic history. And that's what we call the heresy of Jansenism. All right? So... This Bishop Cornelius Jansen, he died in 1638, and he wrote a little treatise on God's grace that became wildly popular, but it was wildly wrong. And basically what he said was, God's grace by itself is not enough to save us. God's grace by itself is not enough to save us. What we have to do is really cooperate with God's grace perfectly for him to be pleased with us, right? So have you ever heard in our Catholic tradition there's attrition and contrition? Have you heard those words before? Contrition would be perfect sorrow for sin, and attrition would be imperfect sorrow for sin, right? So... 
I'm sure this has never happened here at St. Patrick's and St. Charles, but let's imagine some other parish far, far away from here, okay? Like uh, Geneva, for example. Okay? It's going gonna, it's gonna to be hard to even hear, but trust me on this. You guys, there are Catholics in the world. Really, seriously, this happens. They'll go to confession, and they'll confess a sin in confession, and then they'll commit that sin again after they've confessed it. Can you believe that? Oh, and so what this heresy says, what Cornelius Jansen was saying is that that's not enough for God's mercy. To have God's mercy, we need to be perfectly sorry for our sins. And if we're not, we have to do wild, outrageous acts of mortification because when he looks at us, he's fundamentally displeased with us. When God looks at us, We're foul and ugly and sinful and shameful. And so we need to treat ourselves like that. And that's where like extreme, radical, rigorous mortification came in. All sorts of fasting. And it even affected some of our great saints. So have you heard of St. John Vianney before? He's the patron saint of parish priests. He used to boil potatoes on like Saturday afternoon. And that would be his meal for the week. And that's the only time he would boil them as kind of an act of mortification. And so uh, by like Wednesday or Thursday, the potatoes had spoiled. But he'd still eat the spoiled potatoes because of this rigorous mortification. Now that's not necessarily saintly behavior, right? It's not textbook sainthood. But what it is is kind of an infiltration of this Jansenist way of thinking even in the lives of our great saints. So it really kind of affected all sorts of Christians for a couple few hundred years all throughout our Catholic world, all right? And so right at this time, when Christians are thinking they're ugly, they're foul, they're rotten to the core, when God looks at them, they're, they're ultimately unlovable, Jesus shows up to this little nun in France and has a big message about his about his love. So I want to talk for a second about who we are as sinners, and we're going to get super nerdy and super theological real quick, but I think you'll like it. It's really important for us to kind of understand how much we need saving to really understand what a Savior is, to really appreciate Jesus and what he did for us Uh, It's important to understand who we are. So, as you probably already experienced or could guess, sometimes I like to stand out in front of the church on Sundays and greet people, and uh, I'll I'll say goofy things, you know. Come on in, everybody. We're giving out free Eucharist. (laughs) Or I'll say, come on in, sinners, welcome, you know. And there was one time I was shaking hands at a parish, and I said, come on in, sinners, welcome. And this lady said to me, But what about those of us that aren't sinners? (laughs) And I I sort of said, that's the great news. There aren't any. (laughs) And she uh, kind of took me aside and said, 
you know, you really make me feel bad about myself. And I apologized. I said, yeah, maybe, I, you know, my little shtick in front of the church wasn't the most tactful thing to do, but I apologize. I, you know, these shirts are like 50 bucks each. I don't buy them to make people feel bad. You know, that's not, <laughs> that's not my whole shtick as a priest. Um, but it sort of got me thinking. I think there are plenty of people that think either you're a sinner or you're a saint, right? Or something like uh, either you're a terrible person or you don't really make those sinful mistakes. But at the, at the risk of sounding arrogant, and if, if I do come off that way, I apologize, I think I'm a fairly decent guy. You know, I didn't, I didn't steal any cars today or push down any little old ladies in the street or anything like that, you know, but at the same time, I'm very good at sinning. You know, I, I sin almost on a daily basis. And so kind of the, the reality is, as G.K. Chesterton tells us, we're all in the same boat and we're all seasick. First um, John tells us all have sinned and are deprived of the glory of God and that he who says he is without sin is a fool. So it's not kind of like seminary in the 90s teaching us this or this current fad in, in cultural Catholicism. It's right there in sacred scripture that it's kind of a reality of who we are. And so I want to talk about three guys who kind of tried to explain our sinfulness. The first was a priest in the Diocese of Rome in the 300s, and his name was Pelagius. And Pelagius said, I don't know about you, but I don't know Adam and Eve. You know, I got nothing to do with Adam and Eve. And frankly, the people that I work with are are pretty good, family-oriented, hard-working people who do their best to love their God and help their family. And so uh, they didn't eat the fruit off of that tree. And so, you know, I don't think they're fallen. I don't think original sin has affected them. That only affected Adam and Eve. And so people are essentially good. People are 100% good at the core because God created them that way. Dot, dot, dot. If we just work hard enough and do good enough, we can get to heaven on our own. We don't need God's grace. Now, if you've had a Catholic education or you've heard of Pelagius before, uh, maybe that sounds crazy to you, but think about this. We know people in our lives who think people are 100% good and, uh, you know, can kind of if they pull themselves up by their bootstraps and really work at it, they could kind of attain their salvation on their own, right? Again, not the Catholic position, but wildly popular when it was said. Then let's go to the other extreme. There's a guy who was talking in 1517. He goes by the name of Martin Luther. Maybe you've heard of him. And he was kind of struggling with his own personal sins. He had his own kind of spiritual grapple in his own spiritual life with sin that he wasn't able to overcome. So talking about attrition and contrition, he was repeatedly committing sins and repeatedly going to confession and he was getting really kind of down on himself. And so he kind of comes up with this theology that says, I can't do it. I'm not strong enough to stop sinning. It can't be up to me. Therefore, it must 100% be up to God. 
And so Martin Luther came up with this anthropology, this theological idea of the human person, that we are 100% bad, 100% corrupt to the core. And uh, to use a nerdy theological term, he talks about forensic justification. God saves us outside of ourselves. He puts a blanket of his grace over us so that we appear righteous. We appear saved because he's so good, but at our core, we're rotten. I'm going to use Martin Luther's own words, okay, to describe this concept. This is not from Father Bachman. This is from Martin Luther. He says, we're like a heap of dung covered in snow. Okay? So we're rotten, but God's grace covers us, and we appear redeemed and justified to him. So here we have the polar opposites, right? You have Pelagius, we're all good, we don't need God's grace. You have Luther, we're totally bad, we're in complete need of God's grace. And then we have the Catholic position right in the middle, brought to us by our old man, St. Augustine, right? And he says... We're naked, we're shameful, we wobble, we're off kilter, we're broken, we're wounded, but ultimately, we're good. Since God created us and God is our source, ultimately we're good, but we're wounded by what he calls concupiscence, this tendency to sin. It means a tendency to look out for number one, a tendency to be selfish in certain situations. And when I'm describing concupiscence or this tendency to sin, I do use two examples. One you've already heard, Randall Road, right? (laughs) And it's a big joke, but it's also true, I think. Uh, Take what would otherwise be good, holy, God-fearing, lovely, family-oriented people, put them on that road, and all of a sudden we can start to have this tendency to look out for myself over other people. And the other example I always use is the airport, right? If you want to know what concupiscence is, just go through the airport and see people kind of look out for themselves and protect their own interests. So that's what St. Augustine says we're kind of like. And so to kind of describe this, uh, could you tell me, if we were to make a car, can you tell me what some of the things we would need to make a car would be? Can we do a little interactive? I'm going to build a car. Wheels. Engine. Brakes. Oh, yeah, that's good. (laughs) Steering wheel. Rotary girders. GPS. (laughs) Right? So those are the things we need to make a car. We'd call those the constitutive elements of what we would need to make a car. Let me ask you this. If I throw a car in Lake Michigan, what will it do? Sink. Every time it'll sink. Interesting, though... When I said, what do we need to make a car? Even the joke answer is like GPS. Nobody said sinking in Lake Michigan for what we need to make a car, right? Even though it'll do it every time, it's not what it means to be a car. In a similar way, every human being, except a couple, will sin, but sinning is not what it means to be a human being, right? We have a tendency, a wound, a wobble to look out for ourselves But, uh, you know, when we make a mistake and people will say, well, it's only human, right? 
That's mistakes and sin are not exactly what it means to be a human. To be a human is to unite ourselves with our Lord Jesus, all right? So far, so good? All right. So in the midst of all this sin and fire and brimstone, Jesus appears to St. Margaret Mary in a French town that I really can't even say the name of. But I want to read you the account of it. On the feast of St. Francis of Assisi, October 4th, 1673, Jesus spoke to the heart of St. Margaret Mary. He told her that he was giving her St. Francis to be her special patron in the coming days and years. And she said, why St. Francis? Because of his great love for the passion of our Lord, a love which rendered him worthy of the sacred stigmata, the five wounds, and made him one of the favorites of Jesus' heart. On December 27th, Jesus appeared to St. Margaret Mary as she prayed before the Blessed Sacrament. She described what happened in this way. For a long time, he kept me leaning on his breast while he revealed the wonders of his love and the mysterious secrets of his sacred heart. Till then, he had always kept them hidden, but now, for the first time, he opened his heart to me. My divine heart is so passionately fond of the human race and of you in particular that it cannot be kept back. The pent-up flames of its burning charity must show. They must burst out through you and reveal my heart to the world so as to enrich mankind with my precious treasures. Next, he asked for my heart. I begged him to take it. He did and placed it in his own divine heart. He let me see it there, a tiny atom being completely burned up in that fiery furnace. Then, lifting it out, now a little heart-shaped flame, he put it back where he had found it. In the fourth, or great revelation, Jesus asked her to have a feast instituted in honor of his sacred heart. He said it was to be a feast of reparation, to make up for the coldness of most people toward his love, especially as revealed through the gift of the Eucharist. And now, what is it, the last Friday in June is always the Feast of the Sacred Heart of Jesus. So mission accomplished on that front. So this is such an important time to focus on God's love and mercy. Pope Francis says the first requirement of God's mercy, the first and only requirement, is that we have to want it. I think that's great news, everybody. We just have to want it, and he showers his love and mercy upon us. Pope Pius XII told us that the real tragedy of our time was a loss of a sense of sin. So again, we really need to understand how much we need a Savior in order to understand Jesus' role in our lives. Pope Francis tells us that this is a a kairos of his mercy. I don't know if you're familiar with this concept, but... In Greek, there are, two kind of, there are two words for time. There's chronos and there's kairos. And chronos is just kind of that sequential time, you know, one appointment after another, one cup of coffee after another, one stoplight after another, right? Just kind of going through the motions of our lives. And then there's kairos, special moments, appointed times, wedding days, significant birthdays, real moments in our lives that make things different, right? Uh, One of the things we we don't always think about as Catholics is we don't always call to mind that God doesn't shower his grace upon us 
equally at all the moments or all the days of our lives. There are certain moments where he really drenches us with his grace. Particular retreats or particular you know, things going on in our lives, he really showers us with his grace. And so Pope Francis is reminding us that this is an appointed time of God's love and mercy. He asks the question, does God have favorites? Right? Ooh, what a theological question, right? Does God have favorites? Pope Francis reminds us, God has a soft spot for sinners. That's one of the themes of our evening tonight. He's got sort of a little preferential treatment for sinners. The Gospels remind us, he did not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Here's another uh, crazy thought that comes to us from St. Ignatius Loyola, my favorite saint. He's the founder of the Jesuits. And you won't necessarily hear this uh, on a Sunday homily from the pulpit, right? It's kind of a radical thing. But St. Ignatius Loyola reminds us, as Catholics, we should pray for the grace of shame. Whoa. Right? Pray for the grace of sorrow for our sins. So let me take a dramatic water sip. Show of hands. Who's heard the term Catholic guilt before? Yeah, right? We talk about it all the time. I hear it almost on a daily basis as a priest, you know. Oh, I was raised Catholic, so I have this Catholic guilt, or I always feel bad about stuff, or I always feel like I'm doing something wrong. Catholic guilt, Catholic guilt. Really, if you think about it, there's really just guilt, right? So if we do something bad, and then we feel bad... Our response should be, thanks be to God. Everything's working, right? I did a bad thing and then I felt bad about it. That's how I'm supposed to feel, right? If we do a bad thing and then we feel good about it, that's the textbook definition of a sociopath, (laughs) right? So... We don't want to feel down. We don't want to feel guilty all the time. Certainly, we don't want the other polar opposite to feel bad about doing good things. But when we do bad and we feel bad, thanks be to God, that's the presence of the Holy Spirit kind of stinging us, pricking us a little bit, not so that we can wallow in our sins and feel bad about them, but so that we can kind of have the moral compass and the courage to do better in the future and to have better living. So... uh, St. Ignatius Loyola says, it's a good and healthy thing to pray for the grace of not wanting to commit our sins again, to kind of be ashamed of them and have better moral living. So, the sacred heart of Jesus. Why the heart? The heart. I think it was last year, I went to go visit a buddy in Massachusetts. He's a priest in the diocese of Worcester spelled Worcester, but pronounced Worcester. And we went and uh, I met uh, another priest there, so there were three of us, a priest from St. Louis, a priest from Rockford, and this priest from Worcester. And uh, we hadn't been together in a while, so we are going to go out and have like a nice dinner together, shoot the breeze, catch up. And uh, totally off all of our radars, right? Hadn't even thought about it. The date happened to be February 14th. I'm going to do a side story real quick, too, okay? Uh, you know the serious radio thing that comes in your car? 
you get like a car and it's free for like 30 days or something. So, and then they start calling you to keep it going when the 30 days is up. So the person called me and I was like, actually I do a Bluetooth thing in my car, I don't really listen to Sirius Radio anyway. But, and they were like, well Valentine's Day is coming up, it could be a great gift. And I said, actually I'm a celibate Catholic priest, I don't really uh, celebrate Valentine's Day. And they said, well I've been married 30 years, I don't either. <laughs> Anyway, back to the original story. <laughs> so the three of us walk into this restaurant and immediately I see like a, a lady over in the corner at some piano with like a red top on playing, you know, music. And we look around the restaurant and there's all kinds of tables of two everywhere. And I look up and I see all these like little strands of hearts all hung all throughout the restaurant. And I got to tell you, we have never been so happy to be going to dinner as three priests instead of two priests. <laughs> that, was a real, that was a real Holy Spirit moment right there. But the heart, right? We have all these things in our culture. The heart symbolizes something. something. Uh, you see the t-shirts all the time, I heart NY. Now you see him, I heart St. Charles, I heart Geneva too. Springsteen told us everybody's got a hungry heart. Janis Joplin said, take another little piece of my heart. The Backstreet Boys admonished us, quit playing games with my heart. And we even have these phrases in our language, cold-hearted, heartless, people who wear their heart on their sleeve, people who are all heart. Our hearts are hungry, just like Springsteen said. Uh, the very beginning of St. Augustine's Confessions tells us our hearts are restless until they rest in you. There's a thirst to the heart. Pedro Arupe, who was the superior general of the Jesuits, the Society of Jesus, for about three decades, he said the heart represents the fountain of the whole personal life of the Christian. The heart represents the fountain of the whole personal life of the Christian. So I have this friend and uh, when I went away to seminary and my college friends started getting their uh, big people grown up jobs, she kind of moved through the ranks pretty quickly and within a few years she was kind of a vice president in her company and she was telling me this story, every day on the way to work she would pop into Starbucks and she'd get a coffee. And then after several months she uh, kind of do like a little morning pick-me-up thing mid-morning and she'd stop over for a little espresso and then really started to like that so then she'd grab a little coffee treat on the way home. And it was no big deal, it was just a couple cups of coffee every day that she was doing. And then phase two of, of being adult, she got a, like a financial planner and was talking to him and one of the first things he said to do is, before we kind of shape the budget for you, just let's track your spending for about a month. And she tallied it up and she almost fell over. She was spending about $7,400 a year at Starbucks, right? And so immediately she cut it out of her life and she could not believe that's where that much of her money was going. I think it would be in the top three spiritual practices of the Christian to do a spiritual budget and really track our spiritual spending, what we're spending our time on, right? 
I think sometimes, quite honestly, we can kind of get this thing, oh my golly, prayer is what I'm all about. I love to pray. I couldn't go on without prayer. I pray all throughout the day. I pray in the morning on my commute. I pray in the evening on my way home. I like to throw up and toss up little prayers to God all throughout the day sometimes. If I'm stuck in traffic, I'll do a decade of the rosary or I'll even do a whole rosary sometimes. I love to pray. And we do our little budget, we tally it up. Hmm, nine minutes. (laughs) Versus how much time did we spend being angry at the news today or, you know working out or whatever it is people do with their time, right? It'd be a very healthy thing to really budget it out and see where our heart is. The heart represents the fountain of the whole personal life of the Christian. Also, there's kind of a wisdom to the heart, isn't there? There's an old proverb that says, you only see properly with your heart, not your eyes. You only see properly with your heart. There's this, there's a wisdom or a logic to the heart that really doesn't make sense to the head, only the heart, right? So parents do this all the time. There are things we do for our children that uh, don't always make sense. So today uh, we had a staff lunch. I was eating a little Jimmy John sandwich with the staff. I said, I need an example of uh, something you did for your kids that you did out of wisdom of the heart that didn't necessarily make logical sense, right? I got a few stories, and just the one that I want to share is there was a daughter who had been on some uh, painkillers after a surgery or something, and they weren't agreeing with her necessarily, and so she said to her mom, they woke up at about 3 o'clock in the morning, and she said to her mom, there's stuff in the corners of the house right now. What do you mean? In the, the corners of the room, I can see stuff. Sweetie, there's not anything in the corners of the house right now. Yes, there is, Mom. You have to get rid of it. Sweetie, there's nothing there. Mom, I can see it right now. There's stuff in the corners of the room. What do you want me to do? I want you to go over to the corners and touch the walls and just make sure they're fine. Okay, dear. So here's this mom walking around the whole house, touching the corners of the walls when there's nothing there, right? We do things for people that don't make logical sense out of this wisdom of the heart. Um... Lovers do it. Lovers who are in love, they'll do some things that doesn't necessarily make head sense, but makes heart sense. Uh, The story I always like to share on this one, you know, there's that mountain in Austria. I forget the name of it, but uh, on the mountain, way up high in this rocky, treacherous terrain, grows the Edelweiss flower. Remember the song from Sound of Music? Edelweiss, Edelweiss. It grows way up in the rocks, way up there. And uh, it's so dangerous. If you go up into that part of the mountains, you can kind of fall off the edge and, and die, right? So guess what flower is the most popular with Austrian girls? <laughs> they want the one that's hardest to get. So guess who goes up to get the Edelweiss flower? Austrian boys, right? They go up there to impress these girls and give them that flower because there's a wisdom to the heart that doesn't necessarily jive with the wisdom of the head. And so perhaps the most illogical thing in history, the thing that doesn't make any head sense but has a total wisdom of the heart would be a God who is perfect, a God who's existed from all eternity, 
a God who needs nothing. Something's going on back there. A God who needs nothing, becoming a human and dying, suffering and dying on the cross to show us how much he loves us. That's the greatest wisdom of the heart that we've ever seen. God has this soft spot, this preferential place in his heart for us, for sinners. And so now, hopefully, did everybody get one of these little uh, cards? Raise your hand if you did not get one of these Sacred Heart image cards. Okay. If there's anybody around you that would share, if you want to scoot over and look at it. Just sort of real quick, I want to go through the image of the Sacred Heart of Jesus and talk about what we're looking at. Maybe we went to Catholic school and we've seen this image a ton, but we're just going to break it apart and talk about lots of little details of the image. First, we recognize the whole image is under the cross. Everything we're about, everything that we're talking about, about God's love is under the cross. That's our fundamental Christian message that St. Paul reminds us of. He says, I preach Christ crucified. I boast in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There are different messages competing in our world today. One of them is uh, Oprah Christianity, I I sort of call it. You know, if you're suffering, if life is tough, if uh, you're experiencing some trial, Oprah would tell us what you need is a spa day. What you need is some me time, right? Go shopping, have a frappuccino, you know, have some me time, and that'll help. Our Christian faith reminds us, you know, that's not an anti-Catholic thing or anything. That's okay to do. But our faith reminds us it's all under the cross, and we can unite that suffering. We can unite those trials. We can find meaning in it through the cross of our Lord. And the other one would be the, the prosperity gospel, Right? Give your life to Jesus. Hand yourself over to our Lord and you'll be a fulfilled person. You'll have everything that you need. Give your life to Christ and you'll have a three-story home and a great job and an Escalade, right? But that's not really the data of the New Testament if we examine it. I always say, Jesus gave the worst pep talks in the history of the world. Be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Don't do your will, do God's will. Take up your cross every single day and follow me. If they hit you, let them hit you again. If you follow me, the world will hate you for the sake of my name. If you follow me, it could divide your family, but at least you'll be poor. Our whole Christian existence is under the cross. Archbishop Fulton Sheen reminds us that the devil does not love because he has no wounds, or vice versa. He has no wounds because he doesn't love anything enough to suffer for it, right? No guts, no glory. Then if we look at this image, we see that it's a physical heart. It's a real heart. I think we forget that sometimes, how radical and how beautiful that is, that after that uh, moment of the Annunciation where the angel spoke to Mary, 
a real little heart started to beat inside of her. Lub-dub, lub-dub, lub-dub. And at that crucifixion, that real physical heart that actually existed stopped beating. And then a few days later, that real physical heart that actually existed started beating again. Lub-dub, lub-dub. It's a real heart and we can really relate to Jesus because of his real humanity when we unite ourselves to him. Then we look at the heart again and we'll see the little crown of thorns around it. He's the king of suffering. When we unite our suffering to his, he'd like to rule our hearts as well. So here's a little story. I was a seminarian at one of our parishes in our diocese and the the priest uh, who was kind of my supervisor for that summer would kind of give little pearls of wisdom at the end of the day and different, different talks and things. And one of the things he was telling me was, when I go to the hospital and I do visits and a person is in the hospital suffering, I always ask them, are you offering your suffering for anything? Are you offering this suffering up for somebody? And I get it. I get the whole like Catholic understanding theology of offer it up. That is a good thing. I'm totally on board with that. But I remember just as a little seminarian kind of thinking, I don't know, that could be pretty awkward in the hospital. You know, you go in there and somebody's in real excruciating pain and you kind of say, so, what are you offering this for? But I went with them and we did a couple hospital visits and very quickly I saw it kind of transforms people. You can explain to them that, is there anybody in your family who could use some prayers? Is there anybody in your family who could be closer united to God or to Jesus or somebody who is in need of sanctification or holiness? Is there something in your family you could offer this suffering for so that it's not merely painful, but it's also purposeful? And rather than get kind of upset at the question, you'd see their face transform in those moments and it kind of gave them a purpose uh, as they were lying there, a purpose to their prayer and to their pain. And so this little crown of thorns is a reminder to us that anything we go through, I mean, it can be big, huge stuff or it can be tiny little nuisances. You know, you grab the grocery cart and the wheel is wobbling. You just, you're so annoyed you want to grab another one, right? You can offer that up and really unite all those inconveniences, all those sufferings for family members, for the world, for holiness of priests, for your parish, for a vocation in your own family, whatever it might be. Then we see that his sacred heart is pierced by the soldier's lance. It's a reminder that all the gifts we have flow from his sacred heart. All of our spiritual goods flow from this wellspring of his grace that is his love for us. The next thing, we see the, the flames around the heart. Jesus' heart burns with love for you. There's a warmth to the heart, right? Like, um, show of hands here, I've only heard about these kinds of movies, but uh, has anybody here ever seen a romantic comedy before? It's okay, you can raise your hands. <laughs> yeah, okay, maybe I've seen like one or two or something and you go through like the trial and the adversity in the movie and at the end of it, uh, you know, everything works out and everybody's happy and if it's the right movie, right? Not every movie, but if it's the right movie, 
don't you like feel that warm feeling inside, you know, right? That's kind of the concept here that this image of our Lord's Sacred Heart is reminding us. His heart is literally on fire, literally burning with love for you. And then last, the heart is outside of his body. He cannot contain his love for humanity. Don't you experience this, experience this every once in a while? Like, uh, I use a lot of food examples, but uh, if you've ever had like a piece of pie, and you, have, you have to be careful with this too, because you want to tell other people how good the pie is, but you don't want anybody, like everybody eating your pie, right? So, <laughs> but if you see a really good movie, you tell people about it. You can't contain it. You can't bottle it up. If you read a really good book, you can't bottle it up. You tell people about it. And um, if you eat a really good piece of pie, you know, you tell people how great the pie is. Here, you can have one tiny little bite. I'll do the thing for you, right? But Jesus' love is so great for us, he can't contain it within his own body. It's on the outside. All right. So I'm very, very grateful that uh, you came tonight. I hope we'll see you again tomorrow night. Just word to the wise, Wednesday night's going to be the best night. So tell your friends. And, and let's, uh, let's start talking about now, if you've got people that have been maybe disconnected a little bit from the church, or you can bring a guest or something like that, and you want to bring somebody back, Wednesday night's the night to bring them. But I do hope to see you tomorrow. Here's a little bit of homework, all right? As we go throughout our day tomorrow, do whatever you got to do, keep life normal, but down deep, let's be on mission. Let's remember that our parish is on retreat together. You can pray for me if you like. I'd love that. Pray for each other, you know, that our hearts would be open to whatever message the Lord wants to give us. Uh, And uh, just pray that the Holy Spirit would continue to anoint us and guide us wherever he wants us to go. Once again, thank you very, very, very much for coming tonight. It's great to see you. Is it okay if I give you a blessing? Would you please stand for that? Again, thanks, everybody. The Lord be with you. May Almighty God bless you, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. We do have uh, hospitality in Tennessee Hall, so feel free to stop over. Yeah, thank you. Please join me singing and gather number 644. There's a wide